I had a few different titles for this message uh, before I settled on one. And uh, one of the titles I had for this message is What Repentance Looks Like. That was one title that I had for this message. Uh, I, I settled on the rich young ruler. And the reason I did that is because I feel like down the line when people are looking for a message like this, it'll be easier to find. I've done a number of messages on repentance. And, uh, but it, it's about repentance and making sure that the Lord's first in our lives. In a story that we should all relate to because this rich, rich young ruler is in many ways a picture of us. Because you look at us and most of us anyway, and compared to, you know, what's going on and how people live maybe in Agora or, you know, Westlake or, or Beverly Hills, right? We're like dirt poor compared to them, right? But when you compare you, yourself, and I'm not just talking about those living in California, wherever you're at, unless you just crawl in from the streets somewhere and you're barely eking out an existence, your life is ebbing away, all of us are filthy rich compared to probably the rich young ruler. You might say, well, I don't own anything. He probably had a bunch of land and everything. He probably did. But I could tell you what, he wasn't driving a car to synagogue, okay? I could tell you what, he wasn't just going to 7-Eleven and just getting a Slurpee. They just didn't have that kind of stuff. We are so pampered and have so much compared to what they had, even the richest people had in those days. And that's a real danger, Oh, you know, I'm not saying that being blessed with things, the Lord says he's given us all things in joy, is evil in itself. But, and it's not wrong. The Bible doesn't teach it's wrong to have possessions. But it is wrong when the possessions have you. Amen? And that's what's the problem with a lot of the church in America is their possessions have them. And they live for things. And we have to make sure that we're living for Jesus. You know? And yeah, the Lord can bless you. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. He said, not to live for things, but he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He will take care of you, amen? And he will bless you. But you have to be content with however he blesses you, amen? And you have to want to live for him and not put things, and money is one of the biggest idols in the, this country today. So when we bring up idolatry and we talk about the idols they were worshiping, a lot of Americans can't relate. Well, pff, I don't bow down and be for something made of metal or stone or, or wood. I would never be so foolish to commit idolatry. Yet those same folks in many cases are committing idolatry. And we have to make sure we're watching our hearts. Is Jesus our first and foremost passion? And I'm not talking about just money here. This happened to be this rich young ruler's idol. And that's the idol of probably many, if not most Americans. But it could be, there could be many, many idols you worship. The Bible says, in the last days, terrible times would come and men would be lovers of self. As I always say, sometimes you may be the kind of guy who parks your idol in your car. It's your vehicle. You put that first. Or you shave your idol when you wake up. You're your idol. You just love yourself. You spend way much more time on your face or whatever than you do in God's word and seeking him. The Bible says they'll be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. How many people are not in fellowship today? And I'm not, and if you happen to be on vacation, you hear this message later, I'm not picking on you, okay? Because you're, you go, you're in fellowship, you're seeking the Lord. But I'm talking about how many people don't go to fellowship anymore because they don't want to lose their Sunday and they want to watch the playoffs and they want to do this or they want to do that and they want to, or whatever, Oh, you know what? It's my only, I only get two days off a week, or it's my only day off a week, so, you know. So you can put God last. Is that it? No, I mean, uh, I just want to rest. It's my only day. Well, get together with the Lord. That's the best way to rest is seek Him. Amen. That's, in fact, when you seek the Lord, you come to Him. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Amen. And spiritually, He is our Sabbath. We don't keep the seventh day Sabbath, He is our Sabbath. We keep the Jesus Sabbath. He is our day of rest. He's our eternity of rest. So it's important that we get this and we understand. And, that, and you know what? Don't think, yeah, this might, I'm so glad because that dude over there needs this, man. No, we need to let the Lord speak to each one of our hearts, amen? And say, where am I at? Because I'm convinced that a lot of people are really, really deceived in the American church and church around the world. I know we have a lot of people that are 
are into our fellowship and what we're, or what our message and so forth around the world. So it's not just the America church. It's, it's a worldwide problem in many areas. Uh, so I want you to go, please, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And I want you to look at this passage because this passage is very arresting. And it says, a ruler questioned him, that is, questioned Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Seems sincere enough. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some of the cultists love to seize upon that, you know, the JWs and others. Oh, see, Jesus is God. He's saying, why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. Ah, he must be, not be God, then that must be a denial that he's God. It is a denial that Jesus is God if Jesus is not good. <laughs> Amen? Is Jesus good? Amen. Okay. So there's a broader point being made here. In fact, it's interesting. In the Gospel of Luke, prior to this, we read in chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's upon Mary. And the power of the, Holy, uh, the, power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the what? Holy child shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is called the Holy Child, the Son of God, Son of the Father, amen, Son of David, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Gospel of John during his ministry, it's interesting, Jesus said, he who sent me uh, is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How many of you could say, I always do the things that are pleasing to God? Anybody here? Don't raise your hand if you're new. Okay. Remember, Jesus says, let him who says without sin cast the first stone. He was the only one that had the right to cast the first stone. The Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. But Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's interesting because Jesus made it very clear that he's God and that he's without sin. In fact, in John chapter 8, verses 46 and 48, listen to what he said. Verses 46 and 58, that is. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So the context of declaring to be the I am God, he says, who convicts me of sin? He's saying he's without sin, he's truly good, and he's truly the I am. Amen? In fact, they knew exactly what he was saying. The next verse says, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And in John chapter 10, verse 20, 33, a couple chapters later, it says, uh, they accused him, saying, you being man, make yourself out to be God. Well, the JWs may not get it, but the religious leaders sure understood what he was saying. Amen? Amen. We understand that he, we know he's God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, at Jesus' trial, they were trying to convict him of sin, of crime against Caesar. And when Pilate saw, we read, that he was accomplishing nothing because he had Jesus flogged, he had him whipped, had him beat to a pulp beyond what you would normally uh, do to a, a prospective criminal to get them to relent, to let him off so they'd say, hey, let's get Barabbas. Because he knew he, was, he was, wasn't a criminal. He knew he didn't do anything wrong. But rather that a riot was started. He was concerned that Pilate, that a riot was going to start. And he wasn't accomplishing anything. So he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See that to yourselves. Meaning, if you're going to have him crucified, because they put him in a pinch, you couldn't let him off because they were, said, hey, we're going to go to Caesar. Let, let him know that you've let a guy off that claims to be the king of the Jews. Or we're going to go to Herod, I should say. So there's a concern here, uh, and Pilate wiggled his way out of it. Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And I think that's a great picture. He's talking about respect to the supposed crimes he had committed, but it's a great picture of Jesus' innocence because he's going to die, according to the Gospel of John, on Passover, okay? The Galileans celebrated Passover the day before uh, uh, and you find that in the Gospel of John. You find that also in, in history uh, the day before because there was a fight between the Galilean Jews and their leadership and the Pharisees in, in Jerusalem and so forth. And uh, the Galilean Passover was celebrated on the day Jesus was crucified. And we read about the Gospel of John and he's the perfect Lamb of God. And Isaiah chapter 53 says that the Messiah would come as the Lamb of God. 
And we read this in Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Wow, okay. He's going to be with wicked men, but there's a contrast here. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Okay, because that's a Joseph Arimathea was a rich guy and became a disciple of Jesus. Like I said, I'm not saying you can't be rich, but man, you better not be living for riches. And hopefully it's God's blessing and not because it's all about what you want, but it's because God's blessed you. So he was in a rich man's tomb in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Says of the Messiah. So what's he doing when he's saying this to this rich young ruler? He's letting him know who he is, okay? In fact, it gets even deeper because Isaiah 53.9 not only speaks of him, that's the verse I just quoted, of not having any deceit in his mouth. And by the way, the tongue is the hardest thing to control. Amen? It's the slipperiest thing. It's the thing that gets us in the most trouble, the, most, the easiest. And James chapter 3 says no one can tame the tongue. No man. But Jesus could because he's a God man. He tamed it perfectly. And it's interesting because if you look at Isaiah 7 and you look at Isaiah 9, we see that he's mighty God, right? He's father of eternity, amen? He's Emmanuel, he's God with us. And who can stand in the gap? Who can deliver? No one can be found. I will, in Isaiah chapter 59, at the very end of the chapter, I will stretch forth my own right hand. I mean, I can only do it. Great to share with Jews, by the way, when you witness the Jews, that Israel is not the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 because the suffering servant dies for Israel and God can't find even one man to stand in the gap. So he says, I will unleash my right hand. And then Isaiah 53, the first few verses, the arm of the Lord is revealed. That's God's hand, man. Emmanuel, God with us. And we know this interpretation of Isaiah 53 is right because of 1 Peter 2.22 says of Jesus... This is what Peter says. And Peter was pretty close to Jesus, wasn't he? Who committed, no, he says of Jesus, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he gives us the intention behind Isaiah 53 as well. In fact, you know what Peter says of Jesus? He says of Jesus, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Interesting. He calls silver or gold the things people live for and they try to accumulate. He calls these perishable things, Right? Uh, you, you know, you, you're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Passover lambs that prefigured what Jesus would do on the cross for us 1,500 years before Christ died, they had to be male lambs. They had to be perfect. There couldn't be any blemishes on them. They had to be full grown. And the very day they were, they were killed and put on a spit, and I've seen lambs on spits, they look like they're on a cross, okay? 1,500 years later, Jesus Christ on Passover day, and Paul says, Christ, our Passover was slain for us, 1 Corinthians chapter five. He is the un they had to be unblemished. You couldn't have a spot on them or they wouldn't be able to be used. Why? Because they prefigured. They were a type. They were prefigured. They foreshadowed what God would do in the future through his Messiah, amen? So Jesus is and was and still is without sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle Paul said, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? So he knew no sin. I love Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hallelujah, amen. Aren't you glad Jesus was sinless and is? First John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John was the closest disciple to him, in him is no sin. You just hang out with somebody long enough, even people you admire and so forth, you'll find they have faults, okay? And if you don't find any, they still have faults, okay? Everybody falls short of God's glory. That's why we need God's grace. So back to the rich young ruler, what's going on here? Good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's going to need to make a choice between following the Lord or following his idol. And Jesus is exemplifying something here. He's exemplifying his own goodness. The guy's going to have to go away ultimately and think about this because he's going to show this rich young ruler who is self-righteous, thinks that he's keeping all of God's laws and that he's right with God. He's going to have to realize, man, I'm not right with God. I fall short. So I believe one of the things going on here is quite profound is Jesus is getting this man to think about 
who Jesus is, the merits of following him, why he should follow him, and how good he truly is. And how, I mean, if he really thinks it through, and I, I'm one that looks, this is what the scriptures say, this is the context of this passage and so forth, but I also believe in the paradigm of scripture that God, just like when we write something to somebody, we know someone else is going to read it maybe, we might have them in mind, right? How much more is God going to have us in mind when we read this in the future, amen? And all scripture fits together like that. That's because you have the, 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 <laughs> the, the you know, you can't even talk about how God's mind is beyond, his ways are beyond finding out. It's so amazing. But it's amazing to me that he emphasizes this because he wants this rich young ruler to, to see not just that he is good, but that the rich young ruler is a sinner, okay? In fact, let's look at verses 20 and 21 now. Because a good, he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And remember, a lot of the Jews felt they were being saved by their good works. There were two overriding problems among the Jews, okay? And one of those problems was that they felt that they could earn God's righteousness through their works. Now, if you look at the second temple period, you look at the writings and you have the new perspectives of Paul, and there's this debate, did they really believe that or not? It's obvious they believe that, okay? Uh, uh, because it's, when you look, take a, a strong look at it, you'll see that many of the Jews did believe they were being saved by their own righteousness. You can't deny a lot of the writings that were from those times. And you certainly can't deny the, the scripture itself where Paul comes against them because of that often. Okay? So that is a real problem there. In fact, even in churches who, are, say, who teach that you're saved by grace through faith, what do people that even hear that message over and over again fall into sometimes? Their own works, you know? And trying to earn their salvation. And you have to correct them and say, no, you know, it's about what Jesus did for you. And are you trusting him and following him? And your works are only evidence of that, right? So that was one problem. Another problem was ancestry. And Paul takes up both these prom problems in Romans chapter nine. Many Jews felt that they were, they were chosen and they were God's people because they were Jews. They were born Jews. But John the Baptist said that God is able to rise up from these very rocks, children of Abraham. He said, repent, right? The axe is already laid to the root of the tree and you're going to go down every tree that doesn't bear fruit, right? We cast in the fire and burned. And Jesus said, you say you have Abraham as your father, right? But Abraham did not try to kill, you know, Abraham wasn't a murderer, he basically says in John chapter eight, right? So you couldn't, you're not saved by your ancestry and you're not saved by your works. Yet this guy wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Now, if there's a plan A, it's be perfect, right? Because if you're perfect, right, and you're absolutely without sin, then you could get in the kingdom. Because there'd be no reason to exclude you. You've obeyed God's law perfectly. Plan A, right? And I'm speaking hypothetically. Nobody has been able to do that. Whoever says he's without sin is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him. So he says to the man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, that is, the rich young ruler said to him what? All these things I have kept from my youth. Woo, wow, amazing, huh? All these things. He didn't say, hey, I've done all these things. I've obeyed all these things. He says, all these things I have kept from since I was a little kid. I mean, Jesus, if you looked at these commandments that you're talking about, and you just had a videotape, he didn't mean it like this, but he's saying, hey, since I was a little kid, and you looked at my life, you would see that I've always been obedient. Now, I asked you at the beginning of this message, how many of you can say what Jesus said, that I always do what's pleasing the Father? Guess how many of you raised your hand? Only two of you. No, nobody did. Okay. But guess which one, guess what the rich young ruler would have done if he was here? I'm the only guy. Woo, yeah. He had to raise his hand, man. And he's in trouble because he's not being honest with who he is. And it's interesting because Jesus told him to obey if he was going to get in. Okay. Because he's self-righteous. You need to obey all God's commands. All these things. You're doing all these things. And, you know, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus say, give him these laws? Why doesn't Jesus just say to him, like Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God? Why didn't he just say that? It's a different need. It's a different need. And Jimmy, you hit the nail on the head. He's putting his finger on this guy's problem. And this guy thinks he can be saved 
by how righteous he is. He has a different problem than Nicodemus. They have similar problems. They both are relying on the law. But this guy, Nicodemus was a rich man, by the way. And Jesus doesn't deal with riches when he talks to him. He simply just says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But this man grew up with riches, was in the lap of luxury, felt he was obeying the law, he felt he was a good Jew, he's Torah observant and what have you. And it's interesting, Jesus is giving them the law, you see, because the law shows us our need for Christ. Paul said the law in Timothy chapter 1 was not given for the, uh, the righteous, but for sinners. Why? Because Paul says in Galatians 5.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor. The law, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, so forth, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. How does the law lead us to Christ? It shows us our need for forgiveness, right? Because the law is a mirror of God's holiness, of his character, of his righteousness, of his attributes, of his perfection, of his, the fact that he is holy, holy, holy. And then when I look at the law and I see God's perfection, you know what I say? Holy, holy, holy. But I also say, unholy, unholy, unholy. I'm nowhere close to you. There's none like him, it says. He alone is holy, the Bible says. But we're called to be holy. We're made holy by the blood of Christ. We're forgiven, amen? Then we get consecrated as he gives us a new heart. Sanctification. But we look at the law in our natural state, in our fallen state, and we're honest with it. We're like, unholy, unholy, unholy. I need Jesus. It's a tutor, pedagogue, that leads us to Jesus, okay? In Romans 7, 7, Paul, he says this. I would have, listen to this. He said, I would have not known sin. I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I wouldn't have known it, man. Until the law said it. Whoa. John Wesley said, when you preach the gospel to people, preach 90% law and 10% grace. What do you mean, man? We're not supposed to tell people that they can be saved through the law and through Moses. No. You're, gonna, you're supposed to people, let people know you can't be saved through the law. But that the law is a tutor that shows us our sinfulness and our need for the Savior. Amen? Amen? That's why, as Walter Martin said, before you give them Jesus, give them Moses. What's Jesus doing here? He's giving this rich young ruler Moses. Okay? We're talking about sharing the gospel. He's letting this guy know you can't be saved based on your own righteousness. Okay? He's giving him Moses, a heavy dose of Moses. Ray Comfort wrote a book years ago i talked about this book in the past because I thought it was an awesome book called Hell's Best Kept Secret. It's still an awesome book. If you're looking for a good book to read in the new year, that's, one of the, that's a really good book. Hell's Best Kept Secret. And what's Hell's Best Kept Secret? The devil, Satan, does not want you to know how effective using the law is in winning people to Christ. What's Hell's Best Kept Secret? Satan doesn't want you to know how effective using the law is to bring people to Christ. Because if you tell somebody, hey, you know what? You seem like a good guy. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Just begin following him and you'll be really blessed. Is that person motivated to really follow Jesus at that point? No. But you let the person know, man, they're in dire straits. They've sinned. They've broken God's law. In fact, an illustration that he uses in that book that I think is really great, man, is uh, the parachute illustration. He talks about a pilot telling the stewardesses, hey, we're going down, man. The engines are out. And I haven't read this for years and years and years, so I might butcher the illustration, but I'll give you it in principle. And, you know, the, uh, the engines are smoking, and, and we're, we're going down. We're all just going to perish. We're going to die. We've got some parachutes back there. Get those parachutes on the people. And you have a seeker-sensitive stewardess that doesn't want to offend anybody. It goes around telling people, hey, you might want to put this, this parachute on. It'd make you really look nice and fit you really well. It's a beautiful plan for your life, you know. And the guy, most people say, no, why would I want that? I look stupid. One guy's like, hmm, likes the stores or whatever. Oh, okay. Straps it on. He's kind of leaning forward. Back start ache. People are looking at him like, what are you doing, dude? Finally, he's getting chuckles. He's embarrassed. And he's getting mocked. And he takes it off. However, another stewardess is telling people, 
we're going down. <laughs> the captain said, he doesn't want to spook everybody. He says, not over the intercom. We're going down. We're going to die. The engines are on fire. So we only got a few minutes. People are going to be like, give me him. They're going to be fighting for the parachutes. Isn't that right? Guess what? Too many people witness to non-Christians by saying, hey, why don't you wear Jesus? Why don't you have a little makeover for your life? You may need a change in your life. He might do you some good. Oh, you're going through some things right now. Just, you know, get close to Jesus. Try Jesus out. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus is a cuss word in our world. Did you know that by now? People are motivated just based on that to come to Jesus. But guess what? You let them know. Hey, the Bible says this point of man wants to die. But after this, the judgment. And this God is a God of prophecy. He tells the end from the beginning. He's revealed who he is. He made all things. And hey, and I, I like to say this, you know, I don't always give the good person test, rarely do, but I use variations of what's called the good person test. I like to just say, hey, if you died today, I just led some of the Lord doing this recently, just in Mexico. If you died today, and in fact, that was cool because uh, Nathan was with me, and we kind of tag team. And I start out with, hey, if you died today, and you stood before God, and he said, why should I let you in my kingdom? What would you say? And he said, well, actually, I started this way. I, I witness this way sometimes. Hey, so what are you going to do after this festival? Because the jumpers are there. He's a younger guy. He goes, ah, you know, and what do you do after that? Well, I had him all the way in his career. <laughs> you know, what do you do after your career is over and you retire? Oh, man. What do you do after you retire? Uh, like when I die? You know, I forget exactly how he answered it. I go, yeah, in the end. And then all of a sudden I have him at Heaven's Gates, <laughs> you know. We're having this nice conversation. And you're taking interest in him because you are interested in him. You want him to be saved. And then I ask, what? You don't have to go through all that. You just, sometimes I just say to the person, I'm a lot of time, you know, I've just got to, oh man, I'm talking to this person, I got to get over here. And hey, hey, you know, are you saved? And a lot of times they'll say, what do you mean saved? Glad you asked. Glad you asked, you asked me. Okay, I don't say it that way until later maybe. And they say, you asked me what it meant, you know. And, uh, and you get them before heaven's door because they're going to stand before God ultimately. And they usually will say things like, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And they'll rattle things off like the rich young ruler was saying, yeah, I checked all those boxes. But there's one box I could always make sure they can't check. Sometimes they're honest. They say, yeah, I blew it in every area. God, I'm in trouble, you know. And there's one box they always don't check. And that's the box that Jesus emphasized here. There's a lot to learn from Jesus here. A lot to learn from him everywhere. So it's interesting. Uh, the law shows us our sinfulness. Jesus is emphasizing his own goodness. And this guy is to know that he's being self-righteous. Now, it's interesting. Verse 22 says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. So all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come What? follow me. You lack one thing, for sure. This guy lacked, for sure. He had a lot of possessions, and they were first in his life. Sell what's first in your life, your, your God, your idol, and come follow me. Put the Lord God first. And we know, you know, the, the funny thing is, he couldn't even get past the very first of the Ten Commandments. Because what's the first of the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Amen? Amen. And if you refuse, if there's things, and I'm just going to put you on the spot because I love you. Joe, when you talk like this, some people won't come back. That's okay. Because I'm, I'm a comrade. The Bible says I'm a companion with all those, the psalmist, all those who fear you. I, wanna, I walk with those who love God and fear the Lord. If people don't want to, it breaks my heart. Please, I'll pray for you to seek the Lord. But I'm telling you right now, if there's something in your life that you would not, you refuse to give up and you put before the Lord, that's idolatry. If it's pornography and you're just like, I know the Lord wants me to give it up, but I love my porn more than I love Jesus. That's, that's, well, no, I don't love it more than I love Jesus. I just can't give it up. No, you love it more than you love Jesus then. Because we make decisions based on the things that we love. 
decisions that we make are based on and what, what we put first and what decisions we make. So if a man has seen another woman and his wife says, I'm out of here, you won't repent, I, I have no future with you. Oh, but I love you, honey. Oh, do you? Does he really love her? And I even love you more than her, I just don't want to give her up. Same thing with sin, man. Is there certain pleasures that you have? It doesn't have to be porn, it could be money, things of this world, certain pleasures that you have, certain things that you do. You could put a, a, a relationship with a non-believer or even a believer before the Lord. Maybe someone's, you're, you're in a relationship with someone who's leading you away from Christ and encouraging you not to follow Jesus. But you say, I love Jesus, but I'm going to stick with this person no matter what. And when you're not married, if you're married to someone, you remain faithful, amen, and they become your, 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 your mission field. But if you're not married and you're being tempted to be in a relationship with someone who's not following Christ, you can't say, well, I'm following Jesus, but, you know, this person doesn't love Jesus. God puts all these things in line for hearts, and we have to say, what's first in our lives? And like I said, there's people who are lovers of self the last days, lovers of pleasure. You know why that's written in the New Testament? Because God knew that it would shift and that many people would have idols that are not sticks and stone, and they justify it. That's scary stuff when you think about it. And this man's idol was his money. You shall put nothing before the Lord your God. He was putting money before the Lord his God. And Jesus just nailed him. You aren't perfect. You aren't even close. You can't even keep the very first of the commandments. And the guy knew it. And one of the, uh, when you look at this gospel and one of the other synoptics, it, it says Jesus looked upon him and loved him. He cared for this person. He loved this person. He loves all of us. He wants him to make it. But for there to be authentic love relationship between two people, there has to be free will, by the way, to choose. And this man has a free choice to make, whether he's going to love the Lord or not. Now, idolatry is, it's, there's a retributive you know, aspect to what you becoming what you worship. When you worship idols, you become like the idols. You become as dead as they are as lifeless as they are. In fact, in Psalm 115, verses three through eight, we read, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them, listen to this, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Do you know why it says a little bit later, and it says in Isaiah chapter 6, when Abraham, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He says, say to the people, go on and tell this people, quote, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. There's a lot to unpack there, which I don't have time to totally unpack. But one of the things going on there is God is giving them over to their idolatry. And they're becoming just like the idols they worship. You say, but hey, I've been worshiping idols. I don't tell anybody about it, but I can still hear you talking. They can't hear or see spiritually. They're spiritually dead. And when you get involved in idolatry, you become, first of all, desensitized spiritually then eventually if you continue to resist the Lord, you experience spiritual death. Jesus says, he that keeps my word will never see death. Okay, we need to keep his word. And we need to make sure that we don't give in to the temptations of this world. Now there's something else going on here. Is there's what's sometimes called in theology the messianic secret, where Israel's gonna be blinded because they've been given over to their idolatry. And when Jesus comes, they're gonna miss who he is. And the Lord's gonna use that blindness and render them blind so he could pull off the crucifixion. Because the rulers of this world had known what they were doing and crucifying the Messiah, they never would have done it, we're told. So he pulls off the crucifixion, and then many of the priests who had been blinded in the book of Acts, their eyes are opened, and they can see the Messiah. It's pretty profound. There's something really heavy going on there in Isaiah 
uh, which I wish we had time to really delineate, but I don't want to lose the momentum that we're building in dealing with this rich guy and dealing with our own hearts. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said, no man can serve two masters. You can't have two masters, brothers and sisters. He's going to hate the one and love the other. Or he's going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to, you're going to, you know, he can't serve God and mammon, as he said. And the word mammon is the word for money. You can't serve them both. And the irony is that you can't have both as objects of worship. The Lord God will have no rival thrones. Amen? And greed is a form of idolatry. You might say, well, I'm not nearly as rich as this person, that person, and this person, that person. But you know what? You could look at some rich people and you're more of an idolater than many rich people. Because Nicodemus had money, but he was an idolater. Might have been, but he turned to Jesus. Abraham was a rich guy. He was an idolater. Job was a rich guy. He was the most blameless guy on earth. Read about all that he had. He was an idolater. But you can be greedy and desire to be rich and become an idolater when you have nothing. You have to look at your heart. In fact, listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Listen to this. And greed, which is idolatry. Does, does America have some idols? Oh, yeah. Pop stars, rock stars, sports stars. Anything that come, you put before Jesus becomes an idol. And guess what? Greed, Paul says, is idolatry. And he says, kill it. Put it to death. In Colossians and Ephesians, he talks about put-offs and put-ons. You put off greed, right? You put on a heart of love, man. You follow Jesus. And we're supposed to become like Christ, amen? We transform, the Bible says, from the, to, into the image of who? Jesus. So those of us who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what we're becoming? More like who? You worship your idols, become more like them. You, because guess what? We have a vacuum in our hearts. We've been created to be transformed by the Lord God and to make choices. And you're going to become like something. And you're either going to become more like the Lord and be transformed into his and conformed to his nature or to become like the world and something dead and something evil. Don't let that happen, man. Are you with me today? Put Christ first in your life. Amen. Now, it's interesting. Uh, that was interesting. <laughs> now, uh, and by the way, why did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He said, sell all your riches and follow me. No. He said what? You must be born again. Because what was Nicodemus' problem? He was a Pharisee like the other Pharisees. You know, they championed their heritage as Jews and they had the law. And as long as they just kept God's law, but they're rejecting Messiah. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said to them in John chapter 5, verses 35 through 40, 34 through 40, he said, I'm saying these things that you may be saved. So I'm speaking this way to you. You dwelt in the light that came through John the Baptist for a while, but he pointed me. And I'm saying these things that you may be saved. And you search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. You see, what would keep them from coming? It's all about coming to Jesus, amen? This guy's money was keeping him from coming to Jesus. The Pharisees, they were championing their works and the good things that they had done. And, and look at how holy we are. And he's saying, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you being the teacher of Israel, don't know these things? Because it says in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, that the law couldn't save them and that God would bring a new covenant and he'd give them a new heart. And a new spirit. He takes that heart of stone and may give it a heart of flesh. And he talks about being born again by the Spirit of God. He said you must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So it depends on who you're talking to. So sometimes, I don't say to some people, hey, are you saved? That's just one thing I say out of a lot. I say a lot of different things. A lot of times I find something common to talk about. You know? If I'm a witness to somebody or something they're wearing, I'll just pray and try to be insightful and bring it back to Jesus in some way. But guess what? I always need to bring them to a place where they, need, they realize they need to be saved, that they need to escape the judgment to come. Well, what if they already know that? Well, then just explain who Jesus is. Say, I'm glad you already know that we're condemned without Jesus, but here's how, what Jesus did for you. Like the rich, like, like the, remember the guy in Acts chapter 16, the jailer? What must I do to be saved? 
I think from just hearing them singing songs, praise songs, he was being under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and came to Jesus. Let's look at verse 23 now. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad. The rich young ruler becomes very sad. When he, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was what? Extremely rich. It shows you his heart was in the wrong place. If he understood what he was, he should have, you'd have hoped he would have said, wow, the fulfillment of the Messiah is here and he's personally telling me to follow him and that I could be his disciple and hang out with him and be part of his kingdom. Praise God. That's not where he was at. He got bummed out because it shows you how much of a hold this idol had on him. And idolatry can be very, very powerful. There may be some idols in your life today or an idol that has a very strong pull on you. And the very thing that the, I'm making you sad, like, man, why did I come today? Or why am I listening today? I'm getting bummed out, man. Wouldn't it be better to say, wow, I need to give up that idol. I need to give up that lust of, and, and love for money first or that love for pleasure or that love for pornography or that love for hating on people or refusing to forgive people or whatever you're cherishing, you need to give up. I'm glad they're not all going back and forth, you know. I don't know what this is, you know. I keep looking at Jonathan. I'm like, I know his arms are, he's got long arms, but not that long, you know. <laughs> so it's interesting. And the, the crazy thing is to me, think about this. Is this rich man, this rich young ruler, he's got his whole life before him. Is he going to be able to keep those riches forever? No. no. What about the guy that had the barn? Remember him? The Barnes, he was retiring. He says, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. Or no, he said, eat, drink, and be merry. But that's the way it's say it today, right? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. He's like, guess what? I'm just going to build barns and just put all my wealth in there and just live for myself. And he prays not to God. He says, this is what I, me, my, I'm going to do. It's all I. And then Jesus says, you fool, this very day, your soul is required of you. You can't even keep it. And it reminds me of how they catch monkeys in the Philippines. I told the story before, and then Sonny, Filipino brother in our fellowship, hollowed out a coconut after I had given that illustration. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a powerful illustration because how they catch, in the Philippines, how they catch monkeys, right? They'll strap a coconut to the bottom of a tree after they hollow it out, and they'll create, you know, a small little hole just big enough for a monkey to squeeze his little paw in there, and they'll put some fruit in there like a banana or what have you. And the monkey will stick his paw in there and grab it. And then the hunters will come and they can just waltz up there because he can't get away. You know why? His hand is stuck. And he, can, he pulls, he screams, he sees him coming, he jumps all around. And they beat his, beat his brain, they beat him to death, and kill him, man. Monkey stew or whatever they eat. Now, could the monkey got away? How? Just letting go of the fruit, slipping his hand back out but he refused to let go. I think that's a powerful picture. Why? Because he can't keep that anyway. But he sacrifices his life trying to keep it. He gets zero, neither, right? When we put Jesus first, guess what we get? We get Jesus' everlasting life. And guess what? We get eternal riches. Amen? <laughs> that the riches of this world can't even hold a candle to. Do the math, folks. Live for Jesus. Amen? There's no future in living for things. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 and following. Well, actually, I'll start a little bit earlier. It speaks in verse uh, 5. It speaks of men of constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. As NIV says, they suppose that godliness is a means of financial gain. So they teach that, hey, man, man, just, you know, obey these biblical principles, man, and you're going to be rich. That's all over the internet. It comes in many guises and many forms. You know, it comes in its most obnoxious, full-blown form through the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity movement, you know, the word faith movement. Oh, a lot of other movements have versions of this. It's just about following these biblical principles and you'll be rich. Hmm. And these word faith teachers, they teach that godliness is a means of financial gain. In fact, I've quoted many of them through the years. 
where they even take, they even twist the scriptures and they'll tell people, God tells you to command him, to command him to give you things. And he has to obey those commands. And I'm not, they, I mean, that's like treating God like a genie. Ooh, that is like dangerous, man. It's not dangerous in that you might get in trouble. It's you who are in trouble if you start commanding God. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Who do we think that we are? But Paul goes on to say, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Being content, amen? For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either, Paul says. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, now notice this, it doesn't say the rich. It applies to a lot of the rich, but it says those who what? Want to get rich. I remember I went down with Scott Pruitt. Hey, Brother Scott, if you're listening from Florida. Uh, we went down, and years ago, members of Blessed Hope Chapel, we went down to a Kenneth Copeland convention. One of the big buildings over there. I forget exactly what building over. ton of people there. Uh, not to listen to Kenneth Copeland, okay? He's a f- heretic. He's a false teacher, you know? He says that we are gods and, and that Jesus never even claimed to be God and such weird things, man. And we went down there to reach the people, you know? And what was amazing is the people, many of them were poor, trying to follow a formula of trying, how to, of, of trying to get rich by using basically scripture as like incantations and positive confessions to, to, to say certain things, to you know, twist God's arm or follow certain spiritual laws to, to, to get rich. And we witnessed to people and it was just heartbreaking to see, wow, there's so many people. And by the way, that's the most popular version of the gospel that the non-believer hears if they tune into so-called Christian TV. Not against all Christian TV. There's some good things on Christian TV. But when you have, you know, Frederick Price and Creflo Dollar and, you know, Kenneth Copeland and a lot of the newer guys now, it's, it's quite crazy. Uh, for we have brought nothing to the world. It goes on to say, if we have food and covering with these, we'll be content. You have food? You have a place to stay? Be thankful. Be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, verse 9. A snare, a trap. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those desires to put things before God and want to accumulate things and be rich, engage your life on how much you possess, will lead to ruin and destruction. Verse 19. For the love of money, the love of money is a root, not the root, but a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, listen to this, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. They've wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. There are countless people, perhaps millions of people, who once proclaimed faith, who don't even end up at church anymore because they've wandered away seeking the things of this world. Jesus warned, in his parable of the sower. Remember in Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, three times Jesus is recorded to have given this parable of the sower, and there's different, four different soils. Each soil represents a human heart. And three out of four of those soils, 75% of them end up, are lost in the end. And I'm not going to go through each soil, but I'm going to mention the third to last soil in Matthew chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus talked about the the seed, which is the Word of God, represents the Word of God, landed on soil. And there was life. It grew for a little bit. But then the thorns and thistles choked out the life. And in verse 22 of chapter 13, Jesus goes on to say a little bit further down to interpret this parable. And he said, the soil that received the Word, the seed, it represents the heart that receives God's Word But then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. So guess what? Satan is going to blow seeds of temptation into your life. He's going to tempt you to get focused on the cares of this world. You know how many people no longer go to church because of COVID? It's it's an alarming number. Some estimate in the millions. Wow the cares of this world for many people. You, wait, wait, Joe, I don't go to, but I'm still seeking the Lord. I'm following the list of you right now, but, you didn't. well, good. But I'm talking about people that just fell out, man. People that just fell out. They aren't following the Lord anymore. 
and the deceitfulness of riches. Riches can be deceitful, can't they? Because they offer what they can't ultimately deliver. You see, your heart is empty. The Bible says that the heart is like a vacuum that only Christ could fill. And it remains a vacuum until Christ fills it. The Bible says God's created eternity in our hearts. Only the eternal God could fill that void. Amen? And you can start, you know, you can take drugs. Some of you, some are saying, man, I don't, I'm not into porn. I'm not into, you know, loving money, man. And you know, I'm right. But you have, but you're doing drugs, man. You're doing mind-expanding drugs. I remember being empty as a teenager, man. Doing drugs. Oh, they'll open your mind. Yeah, they made me more aware. That's all right. More aware of my emptiness inside. Made me more aware of the demonic world too. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a dead end, you know. And all these things are dead ends, man. They're empty in the end. We need to come to Jesus. The deceitfulness of riches. The story's told of, you know where the term a white elephant gift came from? The white elephant gift? It's quite a story. It is supposedly the king of Siam, which is modern day Thailand, right? The king of Siam, when he wanted to ruin someone's life that he didn't like. See, he had these prized white elephants, beautiful albino elephants that were stunning. And people would be like, whoa, imagine having one of those. And guess what? If he wanted to ruin someone, he would gift them a white elephant. Then they'd have to feed that white elephant and feed it. And guess what? It was so expensive to have a white elephant. It consumed your life. And it was against the law if the king of Siam gave you, so the story goes, if he gave you a white elephant, if he gifted you a white elephant, it's against the law to get rid of that white elephant or to kill it. Or you'd be killed. Elephant, it's like, honey, guess what the king of Siam gave us? He gave us a white elephant. We're way beyond the Joneses now. Or what's some Thai name? You know, we're, you know. And his wife's like, wow. And then a little bit later, they're fighting because they can't pay the bills. They can't keep up with the Joneses. And all of a sudden, they're at each other's throats. And, and you know what? Man, he should have just been happy and content with his pad thai. You know? Man, Thai people make some good food. I mean, there's a lot better things than pad thai even. But that's, that's how you get started on Thai. Okay, that's a starter. But you guys... Satan is trying to jump, drop these, the deceitfulness of riches in your life. White elephants, live for this. Make this about, and this stuff just perishes. At your funeral, people aren't going to say, unless they're, you know, they're not going to say, yeah, this person, man, they had this cool white elephant. They're going to talk about you and who you were and how loving you were and what a blessing you were to them and how much you love the Lord and, and how you cared for them or you cared for others and what you did for the Lord and, and your family and the kingdom of God, amen? Those are things that count. Major in those things. Major in the things of the kingdom, amen? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's imperative. It's important that we understand this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter warns about these money-grubbing preachers, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth, Christianity, will be maligned. This is being fulfilled today. When you run into something, oh, what about all those money preachers, man? And, you know, what about, yeah, well, it says they would come. Well, Christianity, well, yeah, it says that's what you said, would say here. I've used this when I've witnessed. When I used to be a tile setter, I was witnessing to another tile setter. He goes, yeah, what about, I don't know, I think it was Jim Baker or whatever was going on back in those days. And, and he's happening again, unfortunately. We're out of prison doing the same kind of stuff in a certain way. And I said, yeah, it says many will follow them. It says because of them exploiting people. It says many will follow their sensuality. I read this to him. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from a long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It's exactly what the Bible says would happen. That's why we need to make sure that we are extra good witnesses, amen? And that we proclaim Christ and we don't proclaim him as some kind of gimmick to get rich, but as a savior of the world, the creator of all things, the one who died for us, loved us, and gave himself for us, amen? amen. So it depends where your heart's at, ultimately. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, amen? 
fact, let's go to verse 24 now. And Jesus looked at him, that is, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's heavy. That's really heavy. Why do you suppose it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Why is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go through, go into the kingdom of God? Comfort. Comfort. That's right. Because rich people are the hardest people to witness to. Man, we go to countries where people don't have much, man. Man, they love the message about the kingdom of God. They love the message about Jesus. You talk to somebody who thinks they have everything and they don't need anything. You see, you go to that rich guy on the plane and say, and he's got this tux on, he's wearing to whatever, or this super, you know, $1,500 suit. And you say, hey, why don't you, he doesn't want to, you don't want to get that wrinkly and change, ruin his image. You got to let that guy know that he's going down for the count. The plane's going down. And it's interesting because the church in America, I am fearful for the church in America, man. It's a lot like Laodicea which we're going to be covering in our men's retreat in a week and a half up in Massachusetts when we fly up there. Listen to what Jesus said, though, to this church. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These, these verses need to be preached more. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. You catch that? What's the problem with the rich, even in the church? Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. The rich don't think they need anything. That's why it's harder to get them to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And you do not know, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The church doesn't know its true state. You understand what he's saying there? And that's how a lot of the church is. A lot of people that go to church don't believe they need Jesus. And it's really heartbreaking when you read this because it concerns me for the church because so much of the church is like this. They go to church, but they have a lifestyle where they treat Jesus like a Gumby. And they twist Jesus in such a way that he accommodates their idolatry. Because it says in chapter 9 of the book of Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And the heart of many Americans in churches today have treated Jesus like a Gumby and twist him in such a way where they don't have to repent of being involved in sexual sin. They don't have to repent of putting money before him and putting pleasure before him and putting everything and having potty mouths that they refuse to repent of, okay? Uh, doing all kinds of wickedness, treating people horribly and, and, and being mean-spirited and evil to people and not repenting because guess what? They make Jesus into their own image, or the image that they want him to be, where he becomes like a little genie, that they just rub, you know, the jar when they want to cast a spell or make a wish, and, and do not create a Jesus in the image that you want him to be in. That's what this rich young ruler wanted. He wanted Jesus to kind of relate to him. There's only one good. Why do you call me good? There's only one good, that's God. Jesus is saying, you need to know who I am, and I'm not going to bend to what you think is right. You need to repent and get right. But it's hard for a rich man to do that because they don't want to recognize their needs. Jesus goes on, I'm not going to get all into the church later to see it, but he goes on to warn them about now really dealing with who they are and recognize their sinful state and their need to repent. Now, this is serious stuff, you guys. It's serious stuff. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, it says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, Right? Now, it's interesting, he goes on to say in 1 Timothy to charge those who are rich in this world to share their wealth with others, to be a blessing to others. So he's not saying if you're wealthy, oh, you're doomed. No, he's saying make sure that you share with others, that you are a caring person living for the kingdom. In verses 26 and 27, we read in Luke 18, they heard that it said, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? But he said the things that are impossible with people are what? Possible with God. Aren't you glad he said that? Amen? 
because compared to most people in the world, if you're an American and you drove to church today, you're richer than 90% plus people in the world or so. And it's interesting, in verse 28 through 30, Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Believe it or not, even that scripture is twisted by the word faith teachers and prosperity teachers who say, look, he wants you to have a bunch of homes now. He can bunch you to have a ton of homes. You, you can have 100 homes right now and be rich. No, we do have 100 homes already as believers, right? We have each other. That's what he's talking about. We'll be in God's kingdom. We have a family. We love each other. We take care of each other. And this is the verse I was letting you know. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves, listen to this, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It reminds me of a story which I've modified a little bit, made it more like a prophecy because it was not a real story, of two guys that were on an island. And usually it's just one guy that's on an island. But I got two guys there. And they're told of a prophecy that a typhoon is going to wipe out that island and take, destroy them and all their possessions. And one man doesn't believe and he continues to accumulate wealth and build his huge treehouse where the other guy sails miles and miles, miles down, past the shore to another island. And he moves all his stuff over there. And when the typhoon comes, the guy who is on the island who's built this huge treehouse is just destroyed. But the other guy, he's, he's good, man. Well, we're not supposed to transfer our wealth to another island. The Bible says when we do good things for people, we bless people, we live for the Lord, that we're accumulating treasures in heaven. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rot, moth nor rust do corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. Amen? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Live for the Lord, amen? His kingdom is forever. Don't live for yourself. I'm not saying that you can't have things. I'm saying don't live for them though. And don't make it all about those things. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. He'll take care of you, amen? He'll take care of you. By the way, uh, in closing, I have a lot of things to say in this message, but that'll be another message. I'll put it somewhere else. Uh, that would work if I was still going to 11.30 or two hours. But listen, my son went on a mission trip, Josiah, to the Philippines, and he was telling people that you need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus, right? And put your faith in Christ and you'll be saved. And on his mission trip, and he was speaking to a lot of people. We've seen a lot of people come to Christ, preaching the gospel of repentance, amen, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was told by the leader of that mission, you can't tell people they need to repent. People don't need to turn from things to Christ to be saved. And Josiah took him right here to the rich young ruler and said, what is Jesus saying here then? You know? And he said, well, there's a difference basically in being a someone who's saved and then being a follower of Christ. You don't have to be a follower of Christ to be saved. You don't have to turn to Christ and follow him to be saved. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And those who are in what's called the free grace movement, many of them in the free grace movement, will say, oh, this isn't about salvation at all. That's not about salvation. That's just about being a disciple, taking your salvation to another level. And what happens when you do that? You do the very things that Satan wants you to do by keeping people out of the kingdom of God. And this is about salvation. The guy says, what must I do to, what? Inherit or eternal life, amen? Oh, and the disciples understood it meant about salvation. He says, how they, they said, how then can we be saved? Amen? That's the context, folks. Context, context, context. Context is always king. There's a lot of false teachings out there right now. And that's, that teaching is not even coming from the word faith movement. You know, that's coming from a lot of the grace changers that turn grace into a license in many ways. 
And it's keeping people damned. And it breaks my heart because of that. So if anyone's hearing me and they're like, oh, but I heard this is this about being a disciple, that's a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, Josiah continued to preach repentance, by the way. Amen. He told me, you can't preach anymore if you're sure repentance. But Josiah said, I go, how'd you get around it? We're texting back and forth and stuff. He goes, I had a translator and I would just quote scriptures. And as long as I was quoting scriptures, he had to quote, quote scripture too. So Jesus, jo, Josiah, Josiah say something like, the Bible says, Jesus said, repent or you'll perish. Guys, repent or you'll perish. Okay. You know? <laughs> Jesus said this. Okay, I guess I got to say it. You know. So good job, Josiah. We love you guys. And we just want to make sure everybody here is right with God. Because in Revelation 21.8, it gives a list of the damned who will go to the lake of fire. And idolaters are on that list. Make sure you're not on that list. Make sure your name is in the book of life. Amen. Make sure that you say, hey, I don't have any rival thrones with Jesus. He's first. And guess what? If you have a rival throne and you put something before Jesus, you're not only going to lose Jesus, you're going to lose it in the long run. Amen. But if you follow Jesus, you get him and you get all the best things in the end. Amen. He who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He that dies with the most toys wins nothing. You never see a rich man with a hearse in the back of his limo. Amen? But guess what you see with the poorest of saints? With treasure in heaven, man. Eternal life and a blessed future. And our lives are quick. Let's live for Jesus and make sure we're right with him. And make sure we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And don't let anybody th keep you from being forgiven by his grace, his death on your behalf, and his glorious resurrection. Amen. Let's please stand and we'll pass out the cup and the bread.